This is the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. Welcome to the latest edition of Vito's Sit Down. I am your host, Vito Churko. And my featured guest on this edition of the Vito Sit Down podcast is legendary radio personality and former writer for both the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News, Terry Foster. Remember, well known for his days co-hosting first the Sports Inferno, followed by Valenti and Foster with Mike Valenti on WXYT AM 1270 and later WXYT FM 97.1, The Ticket. And he built quite a following and legacy from his days behind the mic alongside Mike and before that in the 90s at WDFN. And the man, the myth, and legend, Terry Foster, shared with me many anecdotes about uh, growing up as a sports fan. His first memory, earliest memory of being a sports fan. The first sporting event that he went to about why he decided to go into sports journalism, about attending Cast Tech for high school, and then going to Mount Pleasant where he attended Central Michigan University. So he talked all about those experiences and how they shaped the rest of his life. And then he reflected upon his days at the Detroit News covering the Bad Boy Pistons, their back-to-back championship teams in 1989 and 1990. And then being, once again, a radio personality for all of those years, first at WDFN, followed by WXYT. And with all that being said, before I get to my chat with Terry Foster, let me pay some bills here and shout out a couple of sponsors for this Vito's sit-down episode. And the two sponsors for this podcast are Tap and Barrel Grill and Motor City Pawn Brokers. And if you would like to find out more about Tap and Barrel Grill, please visit tapandbarrelgrill.com. And for more info on Motor City Pawn Brokers, please visit motorcitypawnbrokers.com. And thanks to the two of them for being great sponsors of the Detroit Sports Podcast Network, which you can find online at DetroitSportsPodcast.com and on Twitter at Detroit Podcast. Without further ado now, here is my chat with the legendary Terry Foster. To start off here, what is your earliest memory of being a sports fan? I'll tell you uh, one of the, the earliest things, and this really pissed me off. I was a child. And it was a nice Sunday afternoon, and I wanted to uh, go outside and play, but the Detroit Lions were playing the New Orleans Saints. And um, New Orleans had the ball, and I figured they're going to win. And this guy named Tom Dempsey uh, lines up for a 63-yard field goal. So I'm thinking, there's no way he's going to make it, so I'm going to go out and play with my boys and everything. We're going to have a good time. So if the Lions won, when we went out, we were going to have a good time, and we played this game called Lim Barney, where one guy was a receiver, another guy was a cornerback, or we would pump the ball to one guy, and then other four people try to tackle him. The one guy who was receiving the punt was Lim Barney. So we're going to go play some Lim Barney, have a good time. Lo and behold, Tom Dempsey kicks the 63-yard field goal and makes it. Man, we were upset. The whole neighborhood, the kids went out and played. We just didn't have a good time. So that was really my first real memory. I think it was one that affected me because we didn't play. It wasn't as much fun that day to play. So with your buddies, you would play pickup football. What other kind of sports would you play growing up, like around the neighborhood? Around the neighborhood, uh, there's a playground called Pattengale. No grass. It's all gravel or, or broken up gravel. We played baseball there and uh, we were Vancouver and Oregon and we had a big rivalry with this other street named uh, Spokane. And then um, Ivanhoe had a team. So it was like five or six blocks had teams. And our big rivalry was with Spokane because I remember there's this dude named uh, Tim Sharp. I still remember him because he, he had a fastball. He'd hit you too. He was He's a mean kid. So um, that's, you know, we played that and then we played uh, tackle football on the field. Uh, a lot of times when it was snowing, we would, we would play tackle football. And then we played street football. And then this was unusual. Uh, black kids in the hood, we played a, a form of hockey. Okay. Do? I had, uh, there was two backyards back to back. And so we would shovel the snow down real fine. So it was slick. So we were, we would play hockey. 
And then the, the other kids would say, well, black kids don't play hockey. You guys have to stop playing. So for a while, we stopped playing because we are, well, black kids don't play hockey. So we stopped playing. But it wasn't hockey. Hockey, we would play with tennis balls. And we had two pylons that were nets. And and uh, I was able to get some uh, hockey equipment because I worked at the Linda LAC. And um, Linda LAC is the old sports bar. All the sports stars used to go in there. And uh, I used to get sticks from the Red Wings. And I had a... Uh, goalie stick from the Minnesota North Stars. They were the North Stars back in the day. I don't know how it got that, but somebody dropped it off. And uh, so that was our goalie stick. Most of the sticks from the Red Wings, they were taped up real heavily because they'd been broken sticks. So they just kind of gave them to us. And that's how we played. So there was hitting and checking too going on with you and your buddies? Yeah. In fact, um, one of my friends, Harold, broke his ankle because Big Mac, my other friend, fell on him. When he checked him, fell on him, broke his ankle. And so we had to stop that day. What's the first sporting event that you remember going to? First one was probably a Michigan football game. I think they played Navy or someone like that. All I know is Michigan won like 70 to 12 or something ridiculous like that. So, um, you know, when you go to a game like that, you think Michigan's the best football team in the whole world because uh, they just pounced on this team. So that was my first one. Probably the, the most fun sports day I had was I went to a Lions game at Tiger Stadium. They played the Atlanta Falcons. It was exciting. Back and forth game. The Lions won 41-38. I still remember that score. And I was, uh, it was my childhood, the Lindell AC, the sports bar. And then Jimmy Butchakaris said, do I want to go to Red Wing games? I'd never been to one before. I said, sure, cool. So the Wings played Montreal that night. I don't know how the game went, but I know, I mean, it was a 4-4 tie. It was real exciting. So that was my probably most fun uh, sporting event as a child. Now, when did you know that you wanted to get into sports journalism? I kind of got an idea when I was um, six years old, I wanted to get into sports journalism. Uh, two things happened. One, I was, all that, I was always that kid that's uh, asking questions and getting on people's nerves. I had my own newspaper, the Vancouver Times, because that's, uh, uh, that's the street I lived on. It was circulation of about five or six. So what I would do is, um, like, if someone went downtown, I would ask them when you come, you know, they walk to the bus. I said, well, can I ask you, you know, what you did when you come back and everything? And they said, sure, fine. So I would, you know, find out things were happening in the neighborhood, fights mostly and, and things like that. And then, like, if Mrs. Perkins went downtown, I would grab her on the bus and interview her. And maybe I'd have, like, a story. Mrs. Perkins went downtown, bought some pantyhose, and went to uh, Hudson's. She had a good time. The bus was late or something like that. And since I couldn't draw, I would have somebody draw a picture on the uh, the paper for me because that would be my artwork. So it was about neighborhood happenings. Mm-hmm. It's not like you covered or you, did you read anything about the Tigers or the Lions and Wings and, you know, the sports teams in town, too. Or was it more of just what yeah, was going was on more, within the neighborhood? the neighborhood, and then I would probably put in the Pistons score, the Red Wings score at the bottom or something like that. And then you went to Cast Tech. Mm-hmm. Talk about that experience, being at Cast Tech, walking through those hallways, and how that helped shape the rest of your life, too. Yeah, and I went to the old Cast Tech, not the new Okay. But, um... Cast Tech was fun from the standpoint. It was a very good athletic program back there. In fact, some of the guys that were on the football and basketball teams I played with at the YMCA. YMCA was on Wildermere on the west side of Detroit. So I knew a bunch of those guys. And uh, I, was, I was the sports editor my junior and senior year. So I knew uh, a lot of the players and interviewed them. And uh, one of my friends was a guy named Daryl Tucker who played for Cast. And then he went on and played at Central Michigan. And then... Um, and I knew some legends like Harlan Huckleby, who played at University of Michigan. I always tell this story that and he hates when I tell it, that I was in the lunchroom and he stole my cherry pie. <laughs> and how did you react to that, by the way? He's like, I would never steal your cherry pie. I said, you were the big guy, though. You're the big guy in school. Whatever you want, you could have. And so I remember uh, it was a big to-do because Bo Schembechler came to the school to visit with Harlan. And some of the other guys, a guy named Thomas Wilshire played at Michigan. Thomas Wilshire, yeah, head coach now over there, yeah. I think he was below Harlan. Okay. So um, when Bo came, it was like a big deal. It was like this big buzz around the school. And um, so those are some of my memories of Cass Tech. So now I bet you've been to the new campus, obviously, since it opened up. How does it compare to the old campus, which I know nothing about, honestly. I've only been to the new campus. Night and day. The uh, Imagine a warehouse. That was our old campus. And we had... um, 
eight stories, and you know the the, the word is it used to be a pickle factory, which I don't think is wow. that's accurate, but but somebody said it. Yeah, somebody <laughs> said it, so it kind of filtered down. Uh huh. I think it was uh, it was like a warehouse type thing, and it was just old and dark, and that's what I remember about Cast Tech. And then uh, I remember one one class I really hated was um, there was an eighth floor in the back geometry class, Mr. Potterella. I wasn't really good in geometry. So, um, but uh, I, I hated that class because it took forever to get there. I mean, it was in the back of the building, eighth floor. The elevator didn't even go up there. You had to take the elevator to the sixth or seventh floor and you had to walk the rest of the way. And um, I wasn't real attentive in class. We used to make paper airplanes sometimes. Okay. That kind of tells me what kind of student uh, that you were then. Just for that class. Okay, just for geometry. Everything good, else right. was good. Okay. Yeah, it overlooked Grand River, which was, it was about, let's say about 100, 150 yards away. And one of our goals was to fly a paper airplane out the window and for it to hit Grand River. Never accomplished that, but we tried. Now, what grade did you get in that geometry class? If you remember, I don't know if you remember at this I, point I, what grade I you got. got. A C. Okay. I got C's and above. Um, I, I very rarely got D's or anything like that. Was there a student newspaper back then at Cast yeah. Tech that you wrote for too? And Cast Tech technician. Okay. Yeah, the technician. Did you become the sports editor or the editor sports, at some point? I was a sports editor my junior and senior year. And um, I think the first beat was uh, football. And uh, one of my big highlights that I was really proud of was I wrote a feature story on the guy, Daryl Tucker, who was a running back in the Michigan Chronicle, reprinted the whole story. So I was like, man, there, you know, my stuff was good enough to make a, you know, regular newspaper. So I was really happy back then. So Castac was good athletically. You said that already, but did you ever envision it becoming the behemoth that it's become in football, specifically with Thomas Wiltshire as head coach? All these state titles now that Castac has won at the D1 level. No, Castac had a reputation of being really good, but then losing in the PSL finals. Uh, usually we lost to Southwestern or Redford. Um, so. Always made it to the big game, but never won it. And I remember uh, another big game they had, they played Brother Rice. And uh-huh. It was just big to do. Oh, man, playing Brother Rice. And uh, I still remember that score, 14 nothing. Rice won. So uh, we were kind of bummed about that. But um, I never envisioned Cass Tech being this. I mean, it's like almost a national power. It is. Yeah. All these top recruits, right? Mm-hmm. Left and right, four- and five-star guys, Terry. Yeah. Now, how did you end up at Central Michigan for your you know, collegiate years? I ended up in Central Michigan because um, through the Lindell AC, once again, that seems to be the, everything goes back here, yeah. Some editors from the, and photo uh, editors and sports editors from the Free Press used to come in there for drinks. And uh, they would come in between 3 and 6 p.m. And sometimes I worked at that time. I, I normally worked the day shift from 9 in the morning till 3. But sometimes I would work from 3 to 6. When I got older, I became the 3 to 6 bartender. And so there's a guy named Ken Clover, uh, Dominic Truppiano, who was a uh, photographer there. I told them I wanted to get into journalism. And uh, you know, I thought at the time the best place to go for journalism was Michigan State. And they told me that it'd probably be better for me to go to Central Michigan, that if I went to Central, I could probably freelance for the free press, which happened. They liked this student newspaper, CM Life. And I would, you know, probably get a beat earlier there, which was true. I started writing my second semester freshman year. And so they encouraged me to go to CMU. So that's where I went. I went, you know, I, I went there sight unseen. I'd never been on campus before. So beautiful Mount Pleasant. That was it. What was it like back then? Because I've been there since. I mean, it's a beautiful campus, I think. And the surrounding areas and neighborhoods, there's a lot to do and almost, I know, too much to do for some of the kids, too, because of the life surrounding Central right. Michigan. Yeah, Central is a blast. Yeah. But uh, I think the thing that uh, I appreciate, I had like three different worlds at Central Michigan. I had the dorm world where, um, you know, I hung around with the kids and we had a good time and we would do silly things in the cafeteria and study together. I so I had that world. And then I had my world with CM Life where you're writing on deadline, you're talking to a different set of kids. Sometimes I would go down to the production plant and help them put the paper together, even though I was never a sports editor there. So that was my, my second life there. What was the student newspaper like back then at Central Michigan? Uh, it was close-knit. You know, it was one of the top papers in the nation. Um, had really good journalists. You know, there's a lot of stories on campus and everything. And one thing you should understand, it's CM Life. Yeah, not CMU, CMU Life. CMU Life, because uh-huh. it's not affiliated with the university officially. So, because if it was, then they could dictate what we write a little bit more. And so we had a, uh advisor, Jim Wojcik, would fight for our stories, and he would fight with the administration sometimes, and 
We write controversial stories, but I never got involved with that. My, um, I wrote sports and I wrote a column for page three. And so that's how I got my, uh, you know, start there. Was there a name for the column? That you had to or a no? Just no, your byline. Really. Just, just my byline on it. And, uh, but I would write about what was happening in the world. Uh, sometimes make fun of things. Okay. Uh, I think probably my, the one that I'm known for up there, people still bring it up, was uh, dur- during our time in school, uh, designer jeans were big. Jordash, Calvin Klein, uh, th- that was all coming out. And so I kind of made fun of that. You know, you stick somebody's name on their ass and you sell jeans for double for than what they were worth. So um, I came up with Terry Foster jeans. And what and were those like, by the way? They were regular jeans. That you, and what we did is uh, we bought some iron-ons. We bought, a, it was, I think it was about 500 iron-ons. And so you could come get your iron-on and put my name on your jeans. And those are Terry Foster jeans. Terry Foster jeans, just yep. like that. And yep. then you got into the free press covering high school sports from yes. what I read about you. What was that experience like for you, and how did that help you out the rest of the way as a journalist? Okay, uh, my beginning at the Free Press was um, they had suburban zones that came out on Thursdays. It was mostly high schools, and um, it was, to me, it was fun. And, uh, you know, you learned about all the sports. Uh, people were happy to see you because it was um, it's different than professional sports. They grumble at you sometimes. And then uh, kids were always happy to see you. Parents were happy to see you because they knew you were going to write about their kids. And so it was a um, it was an eye opening event for me because I had never lived or never never really been to Macomb County. And the section that I covered was Harper Woods, Gross Point, Macomb County. And so I lived in uh, Mount Clemens for about three years. And so um, it was like learning a, d- a new area. I know it was in D- Metro Detroit, but a lot of times you're either on the west side or you're on the east side. At least that's the world I grew up on. So I was never on the east side. So. It was um, it was pretty fun. I got to meet a lot of interesting people. And I live in Clinton Township. I'm close mm-hmm. to Mount Clemens. I freelance for the Free Press currently, mm-hmm. covering high school sports too. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of familiarity there for me with that. I live and then, in Clinton Township too. Okay. Uh, Where did you live? Exactly. Maybe I don't want to say, but uh, oh, what's the name of the apartment? It's, it was on North River Road in Gratiot. Okay. Yeah. So not too far from my place, 16 Mile Moravian. Yeah. Nottingham Apartments. Okay. That was the name of it. Look at that. Now, how well did you get to know Mick McCabe, the son of Swami, back then? Well, I got to know him pretty well because we had to talk to Mick every week. Um, We had, when I was at the Free Press, we would go downtown, usually on a Wednesday or Thursday, and we had a prep editor who organized everything about where we were going. And then there was Mick McCabe who would make his suggestions where he was going to go and where you should go. So um, the the, the sports writers at that time, they, they accomplished a lot. Uh, there was Clifton Brown, who uh, now is covering the Baltimore Ravens. There's Johnette Howard, who is now, I believe she's a columnist at Newsday in New York. There was me. And then the person underneath us, who was kind of like, I don't want to call him a gopher, but he was like the, he would kind of help us out, was Drew Sharp. Look at that. So they had a good, a pretty good stable of, of youngsters at that time. So you got to know Drew pretty well. Mm-hmm. And you had a close bond with him right. as well? Yeah. Drew's like my boy because um, we would... Um, you know, we always complain about our assignments and stuff like that. And so I had a sounding board. He had a sounding board, too. So um, we used to have lunch and things like that. And then we covered the Pistons together. He covered for the free press and I covered for the news. So we uh, we got to know each other even better then. So, um, yeah, we had a good. And one thing about Drew is he's very, very loyal. One of the he'd always look out for you. At least he'd look out for me. And I think one of the funnier stories I had with Drew was uh, we were covering a Pistons-Bull game, Bulls game. And it was uh, during the, the, the playoffs, and all their games were tight, and all those games were going back and forth. And Michael Jordan it's, it would score 40 points, and the Pistons would try to hold him off. Well, back then, we didn't have the Internet. So um, you'd have to pull the plug out of a phone, stick it in your computer, and send it that way. So we were sitting on press, press row. There's a whole bunch of phones there. And I had a phone by me because I'm just typing away. And as soon as this game is over, I'm sending my story. So this radio guy named Les Grobstein, yes, Les Grobstein, uh, he was a Chicago uh, radio guy, takes my phone and, and, and like disappears. I said, dude, I'm going to need that phone in about 45 seconds. I said, I'm going to pull that plug and I'm going to send my story. He says, I don't see your name on the phone. I said, well, that's my phone. Because there's a whole bunch of phones there. Now, if it was just one phone or something, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a, you know, a, a prick like that. But it was my phone. I had to send him 45 seconds. You know, I thought my story was just as important as his. So um, anyway, he, he does his, um, 
stand up, whatever you want to call it. He goes three, two, one, zero. The Chicago Bulls defeated the Detroit Pistons tonight, one twelve to one hundred six. As Michael Jordan scored thirty six points as soon as he said, "I pulled the plug out and put it <laughs> in my computer to send my story." So then this dude Les is like, "That was not right. You shouldn't have done." It. I said, "I told you I was going to, you know, forty five seconds." I said, "I think I gave you one minute." So, so he was pissed at you in so many words after that. So he, this dude Les says. I'm going to take you into the parking lot and kick your ass. Oh, my God! As soon as he said that, I turned around, and I saw a big thing of coke splash up into his face. No way. Yeah. And, and from I, who? I turned around, and it was Drew. Drew had Look at that. A, full, uh, a full cup of coke in his hands. And I said, dude, how did you just spray him with a coke? And then you got a full uh, you know, cup in your hand. He says, I was getting ready to bust him up again. He says, he, he doesn't mess with the Detroit media. So he was ready to back you up. Right. Look at that. So right. what a, a good buddy. Right. And now, what do you think is his lasting legacy, by the way, since we're talking about Drew right now? There's so much that can be said about him. Lasting legacy was his attacks on the Big Ten. My heart sucked, and he had a little song he used to sing. Oh, the Big Ten sucks, the Big Ten sucks, it sucks, it sucks, it sucks. I said, Drew, you stop singing that stupid <laughs> song. So that was probably it, because we always wanted to believe that the Big Ten was a was the best conference in the nation, and maybe it wasn't. So he would point out all its flaws, and that was probably his living legacy. So then you got to the news, the Detroit news, that is. And why did you make that switch from the free press to the news, where I know you cover the Bad Boy Pistons during their back-to-back title seasons in 89 and 90, after that as well. Uh, How did you end up at the news, and and why did you end up at the news, Terry? Uh, I I ended up there because of money. Uh, You know, the money at that time was big for me because I was a young guy and uh, was trying to help my family out. Maybe everybody in my family wasn't doing real well. So the difference in pay was $125 a week. So I just took the money and ran. So I was able to help mom a little bit, my aunt, my grandmother. Uh, no, my grandmother died, but my aunt, she lived with my grandmother. So I was able to help them out a little bit. So And also, you know, live in better spots. And then covering the bad boy Pistons. I mean, I know there's so many stories that you can tell. Uh, but what are some of your fondest memories? I guess we'll go with that. What are some of your fondest memories from covering those bad boy Pistons? A lot of things, a lot of the stories I like to tell are off the court because everybody knows what happened on the court. But um, the one I like to tell is um, everyone assumes that Isaiah Thomas went behind back doors to get Adrian Dantley traded so he could bring in his buddy Mark Aguirre. But uh, I remember one time we were, uh, we were in Boston, the Pistons were playing the Celtics, and this is his usual tight game. And uh, Adrian Dantley was doing his usual post, you know, posting up. You know, I wouldn't call it hogging the ball, but it was just the way he played. It was very deliberate. It was very slow. And Chuck Daly wanted the ball to be moved around the corners, the kind of like an old version of of Golden State Warriors. And he also wanted Dennis Rodman to play more. So anyway, there's a timeout and uh, Chuck Daly and uh, Adrian Dantley get into this huge argument. I mean, they're MFing each other and it just lasts forever. It just doesn't stop. And it was so bad it's the first time that I've turned away from an argument during a game because it was so intense. So anyway, after the game, you know, we get our quotes and everything, and then we go to the hotel. And at the time, you couldn't fly out of Boston Logan Airport because usually the Pistons would play, fly to the next destination, and we'd catch up with them. Well, that night, the Pistons were still in Boston because they couldn't fly out. So anyway, I uh, saw Chuck Daly, and he was still mad from the argument. This is like, this had to be four or five hours later. And uh, he said no uncertain terms, using profanity like you would believe that we got to get him out of here. And he was talking about Adrian Dantley. He said he was sick of this. He wants. Uh, he just went off because it was unusual because Chuck wouldn't tell us anything. He's like most coaches. You know, the palace could have fallen down. He would say, uh, I didn't hear about it, you know. But um, he, he, he just went into full detail how he got had to get this guy out of here. He was tired of him and blah, blah, blah. So that was one story. I'll tell you one thing, um, Isaiah and Thomas and I, Isaiah Thomas and I had a bad relationship for a while because he thought that I was spreading rumors about him, which was not true. And so we got into a confrontation and uh, it had to be, you know, it had to be broken up by Vinnie Johnson. So what we agreed to do is um, we wanted to talk it out rather than just him, him sulking and me going into my corner. Um, the Pistons were uh, playing the Bulls. So uh, they stayed at the Ritz Carlton on the Miracle Mile. So 
I went up to his hotel suite. We talked for about three hours. We talked about our lives, where we grew up, what we liked and all that kind of stuff. And so we kind of had a better understanding of each other. And we kind of became friends because of that. So you got to know him. You mended the fences. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, actually, and this is kind of now piggybacking off of that comment. How close did you get to these players on those Pistons teams back then? Not too close. I mean, we would do things together now and then, but I always believe you had to keep your distance because if you are hanging out all the time, it, it could affect what you write. And I used to get into this with John Sally all the time. He would always want me to write a story about him or something he did and stuff. And I said, well, I would do it if it's newsworthy. But I said, I don't write for you. I don't write for the Pistons. I write for the people who buy the newspaper who want to know about the Pistons. So... And you then, never liked that, but that was the way it, I looked at it. And I bet you had to write and cover newsworthy events mm-hmm. and write newsworthy stories. And and now you see this fine line being crossed all the time, in my opinion, being a journalist myself, now writing for the free press a bit, where it seems like PR news is being mixed in with journalistically ethical news and like hard-hitting news. I see that more and more, Terry. And what are your thoughts on that, kind of that fine line being crossed a lot? between PR pieces, PR slanted pieces that are oriented towards the team and positive about the team, and then these journalists that are still, well, realistically doing their jobs as they're designed to be. Right. Um, I guess I don't believe in negative or positive news. It's, is it true or, or it's not true? So I think what we need to do is we, we let the uh, readership behind the doors. We represent them. We're behind the doors. We should be asking the right questions. And, uh, you know, however they respond, they respond. And so we write based on what we see, on what we report. And um, that should be the main thing. It can't be, well, let's hook the team up, let's give them a fluff piece or whatever. If they deserve it and it's newsworthy and people would be interested, then, yeah, you do it. But uh, I don't go in looking, I'm going to go rip this guy or I'm going to pat him on the back. It's just, you know, what's new? What's news? What's what's true? Sure, make sure it's warranted before you report it. Right. Now, how would those Pistons teams back then, you think, will rank and do against the Warriors of today? One of these best teams of all time, in my opinion, a dynastic team. How would those bad boys Pistons, you think, fare against the Golden State Warriors? Well, I think it all depends on what rules. There's two different rules. Back then, you could be more physical. You can hand check and things like that. I still think the Warriors, especially with uh, Kevin Durant, and Steph Curry would find a way to win because they are so talented. Uh, the Pistons were a deep team. They would go nine deep, but not this deep. I mean, this. I mean, you have all-stars coming off the bench. Um, you know, obviously, if you play by today's rules, I think Golden State would beat them in five or six games. If you play by yesterday's rules, and I know a lot of Piston fans disagree with me, I think Golden State would beat them. We'll probably take seven games. Yeah, I know that's controversial for some people, but the game has changed, right? Looking at the game in the 80s when you covered it, in the 90s when you covered it, compared to today, it's different. It really is, isn't it? Yeah, it was. You know, games back then would be, you know, 96, 92, and if somebody scored 100 points, you're like, whoa, they didn't play defense. But uh, I think defense was was way more important back then, and um, you didn't have the three-point shot was viewed differently. If you shot three-pointers, then you were – you're jacking it up and what's this guy doing? He shoots too many threes. And today it's like, it's an inside out game. You either score at the the cup or you shoot a three. So it was a lot different. So I want to transition now into your radio career. And you were at WDFN in the 90s. Uh, Then you went to WXYTAM 1270 and WXYTFM 97.1, the ticket, where you co-hosted the Sports Inferno and then later Valenian Foster alongside Mike Valeni. And I know you probably have so many stories that you can speak upon regarding Mike. So, Terry, what was it like working alongside Mike Valenti? You know how you get those uh, Valentine box of chocolates? You open the box, you see all those chocolates, but you don't know what's inside of that. You would get a, a different mic every day. You didn't know what guy was going to show up. Was it going to be really sweet mic or mean mic or a mic that uh, wants to goof around, mic that wants to be real strict with the show and everything. So he was always different, you know, every day. It was, and, you know, it would depend on what happened to him the previous day, if somebody pissed him off on the way there, if he had a bad commute to work, or if he had a good commute to work. So... I view him as that uh, big box of chocolates. (laughs) Because he changed. His personality and his mannerisms on a daily basis changed depending on what happened in his day prior to the recording of your show when you guys went live for the show itself. Right. Okay. You know, still a very talented guy on radio, a guy that taught me a lot about radio because this wasn't my first 
This is not my first radio. I, I, I was a newspaper guy. In fact, growing up, I hated radio guys. Really? Now, yeah. why is that? Uh, because, you know, they didn't work hard. Um, they would piggyback off of your questions and to get sound bites and everything. So that would, um, that would anger me, you know, because I was, I thought there was these divisions. There's the print people, there was radio, and there was television. So um, we had those walls up. In fact, and I told you earlier about a fight. Got a fight with a radio guy. <laughs> really? Oh, my gosh. Now, Mike Valenti, is he the same person on and off the air? Kind of a lot of people want to figure that out, too. Uh, I think he's slightly different. Off the air, and this is, no one believes me, this, Mike is actually kind of a sweetheart sometimes. <laughs> really? Yeah. He's the guy, when you go out with Mike, he wants to make sure everybody's having a good time. He wants to make sure that you understand what the menu is and stuff. Because we used to go to... Uh, Las Vegas, and there's this uh, Italian steakhouse we would go to. The Andiamo's? No. Or just another one that's no, over there. Was, um, what was the name of this place? It was in Palazzo. Uh, I, don't, I forget the name of it, but uh, he would go there. He made sure. I mean, some of the stuff was written in Italian. I'm like, I don't know. And he knew it. He's pretty fluent in Italian, too, actually? Or at least to read it uh, and know what's... To a certain extent. Yeah. yeah, he can read it. And so, but he would explain what these things were, and he would order for the table, and then... Um, you know, he wanted to make sure that you were okay, that you were comfortable. He's like the father that wore the pinky ring. Huh. But yeah, so as a good side to him, to like a, a soft side yeah. at the same time. Right. Okay. Something to learn right there. I appreciate that. Now, towards the latter part of your time, of your tenure at the ticket, you suffered a health scare, you suffered a stroke. Mm -hmm. And when you returned to the airwaves for the first time, do you believe that you were treated fairly, I mean, upon your return to the station? I think people didn't know how to treat me when I came back. Because when I came back, I was still sick. But I, was, I didn't want to admit that I was sick. It was funny, you know, I, I suffered a stroke in uh, August. And uh, for four months... I didn't know what happened because basically what I was doing, I was in the hospital or I was at home. I was watching TV, but I wasn't retaining stuff because doctors explained to me that my, my brain was reworking itself. It was trying to figure out what's going on and, and, and that. Uh, so I, was, I would get headaches doing the show. And um, so now I monitor myself more. And so I would take my blood pressure after the show and it was like 180 over something. And my head was pounding. It was like I could feel, it was like something was working in my head. And so I did not feel well after shows. And uh, in fact, I would come home, wouldn't talk to my wife. Uh, she would have dinner on the table. I wouldn't eat it. I would just go to bed. I'd be in bed by, show ended at 6, I'd be, I'd be in the bed by 7.20, 7.30. Huh. So that affected your mindset when it came to deciding once and for all that you were done with the station. The high blood pressure, the headaches. Being tired, where you had to go to bed pretty much right after you got home from doing the radio show with Mike. Right, and I was taking care of myself then, but then I was in my regimen of eating right and exercising. and um, But, you know, it's still, I think physically I was doing well. Mentally, I was trying not to let people know there was something wrong there, but mm -hmm. it was. Because mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't my own self, but I'm still trying to gut through it. I'm still the old guy. But I felt like a different person. So you're saying more mentally grinding it was on you than right. physically right. grinding. Physi I could handle the physical part, but mentally it was like really getting to me. Now, how tough of a decision was it for you and your family when you finally decided to leave the station for good, too? It was tough, but my wife was pushing me to, to quit because she was, uh, she, you know, sometimes she would cry and said, this isn't my Terry. This isn't the Terry I married. This isn't the Terry that goofs around and making fun of her and stuff like that. I mean, I was quiet. And um, so she wanted to pull the plug. So uh, she didn't like the person that she saw. She said, I still love you, but you're not, you're not the same person. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know who this guy is. So it was, it was tough. I mean, I guess we all have to learn about different ailments and things like that. But um, I tell you the scariest night, um, you know, I, I, I did suffer two strokes and then the scariest night was um, I was up into the bedroom, got, went up to the bedroom, and uh, the room started spinning. It was like I was inside of a washer. And, uh, and I tried to walk to the bathroom, fell on the floor. I mean, I, it, it looked like I'd had, I drank a whole bottle of rum. And so um, I thought I had a, a third stroke. And the doctor said, if I have a third stroke, that's it for me. So we go to the hospital, they examine me, they ask questions, and 
the doctor said, no, it wasn't a stroke, it was a stomach flu. I'm like, the stomach flu? I said, that's crazy, because I've had that before, and it's just my stomach turns around a little bit. This, The whole room was going around, but they explained something. So, that you know, that happened. Then one time I had a seizure where I just blacked out. I was sitting right here. As a matter of fact, I had my computer on here, and I put it on my lap, and I was trying to watch TV, and my son was upstairs. He said he heard the computer uh, fall on the ground. He looked over, and I was just kind of slumped over with a goofy look on my on my face. So he called the, the ambulance and you got our neighbors over here. And I don't remember any of that. I'm just going by what he told me that I was slumped over. And, and uh, all I remember is uh, walking outside into the ambulance. I don't remember anything else that I tried to watch TV and then everything else is just a blur. Now, do you deal with any issues or any symptoms, if you don't mind me asking, do you deal with any of that currently? Anything that you just spoke of or anything at least similar to that, maybe? I think now, I just feel different. Uh, for instance, uh, my legs feel heavy. I'm able to exercise, but I don't feel as fluent as I used to be. I can't run like I used to. In fact, for a while, I couldn't run at all. And it took a few weeks for me to run. So I ran out in the backyard and stuff. I was so happy that I was able to run, but I can't run like I used to. <laughs> So that my legs feel heavy. Um, I don't know, just I just feel off sometimes. You know, people are, you know people always ask, "Well, how you feeling?" Everybody's, mm -hmm. "Oh, I'm doing good. I'm doing great." So my answer is, I feel good, but not great. Sometimes I get quiet. Uh, I don't want to be bothered. My wife is talking. I'm not listening to her. That's probably <laughs> most guys. Do that anyway. <laughs> Anyways, right. sad so, but true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that would that would be it. It's just not like I used to feel. Just mm -hmm. a little bit different. Do you miss being on the radio at times and get that itch and that urge to return to the airwaves at times? I miss being in the media. I miss being, um, you know, kind of telling people what's going on or reporting. Yeah, I do miss radio, but I don't miss it as much as I thought I was going to. And I think that's a byproduct of being sick. Before uh, I had the stroke, uh, you'd have to drag me, you know, off of radio because it was a nice platform. I mean, you have to deal with idiots, but... The callers, right? Yeah. Well, not and the other callers, stuff and, you know, other people uh, just in, in public or mm -hmm. a ticket text and things like that, wishing you the worst. But I think that's anybody that's in a uh, high profile or in a, in a you know, profile situation. But uh, it was fun. But um, I think in, in both me and Mike felt more fatigued doing radio when they move this from three to four hours every day. And it, it doesn't seem like that much, but it's like that extra hour is just like, it's like a killer. And I think that's why uh, the show now, they replay things, they have mm -hmm. more fun skits, they have music, they have other things, because it's hard just to talk for four hours. And now speaking of those ticket talks, and you're on Twitter, you have a huge following on there. And I think I read on your blog, through your blog, that you have said that people had wished upon you another stroke. Yeah. Some of these uh, dirty people that have right. kind of gone at you. And yeah. how have you reacted and dealt with that too at times when that has occurred for you, Terry? Well, I mean, it, it kind of, I understand it in a way because I know that people, uh, you know, they like to attack people that have accomplished something. They like to attack people who are in the public eye. But it kind of bothered me from a little bit too because I knew if I had another stroke, that was it. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, my boy Brandon is not going to have a father. Celine's not going to have a father and Adrian's not going to have a husband. So I knew that. And so, but you know, these private, these people saying that didn't know that, but still at the same time, how can you wish a stroke or heart attack or cancer on somebody? It's, it's idiotic to me. And I know people, and you know, it's over stupid stuff like, well, I don't agree with what you said about the lions. So you're going to wish death or illness upon me because I think the lions stink and you are a big fan, That to me that doesn't make sense. But that's not the first time that has happened. I remember one time um, a few years ago, this bo this bothered me even more, that I was, we were talking about something, I can't remember, but you know, somebody uh, uh, texted in, I hope uh, Brandon breaks his leg during his next soccer game. And I'm thinking, this is a kid you don't even know, he wouldn't hurt a fly, he's just out there having fun, you know, he's not the next Pele, so how can you wish this upon a kid? Well, these people are so idiotic. You use that term already, and it's like they have nothing better to do. And then what does it say about those people? Those people are just horrible people right. to do that to somebody over a sports take that you have. Yeah. How ridiculous I, is that, right? Know, how, how would they like for me to ring their doorbell and then uh, look at their kid and say, I hope he falls down the stairs? 
Yeah, how would they I'd like it? And they wouldn't... The, do, I'd be the bad guy. Yep. And those guys probably wouldn't react to it in a very nice manner, right, themselves. They wouldn't like it themselves. Probably if, shoot me. Right? <laughs> right. And then they can do it to you and they feel like it's no big deal. Well, That's I, not right. I, I That's have, not right. I have uh, run into that before where people have said real nasty things to me. And um, so then I would say, what if I said the same thing to you? Then they said, well, no, you have to be above that because I'm on the radio. I yeah, can't it do different? it. Yeah. But because... You're a plumber. You can, because I'm on the radio, I can't fire back. Stupid. That's stupid logic. It should be a two-way street, right, in life, and no matter what you do. so You fire the first bomb, I'm going to fire one back at you. But not going to happen. You better deal with that. You can't do that. No. Makes no sense, that kind of stuff. Now, speaking of the show, and Valani's show specifically, Mm -hmm. do you still tune in here and there? Yeah, I tune in here and there. I'm not a P1, which means that's someone who listens every day, but um, I listen periodically. It's mostly when I'm in the car. A lot of times, uh, if I'm in the house, I'm not listening. I'm watching TV, and today I was trying to catch up on House of Cards. Saw that good show. And sometimes, I, you know, I'm just on Twitter and doing stuff like this, and now I'm a house husband. I have uh-huh. to uh, do laundry and do the dishes <laughs> and try to clean up. I think there's a little clutter on the uh, table over there. I'm going to have to get in a few bits because the wife works, and I have to try to... I call myself a homemaker now. <laughs> so it's taking time for you to get used to, I bet, right? Because you yeah. used to uh, not do this stuff right around the house as much, right. I would right. imagine. Right. No, I, I didn't. So now it's taking time to get used to. That's so true. now what are you up to these days, by the way? Tell the people out there what you're doing. Now, I, I think if I'm right, you're freelancing for the D-Zone, or you have done that a little bit in recent memory. What else have you been doing, Terry? Uh, I have been freelancing for the D-Zone covering high school games because I always enjoyed covering high school games when I was younger. And uh, I like the fact that you're telling the story for the first time. And uh, rather than Kevin Durant, his story has been told a million times. So I like, you know, grassroots and covering games. I just like writing game stories and covering games. So I think people write bad game stories. And I try to tell a story and what's the background, what's the state of the team. So I enjoy doing that. I'm also uh, helping promote this company uh, called yourhappystaff.com. Um, I'm letting, I'm uh, doing vid- a couple of videos on my Twitter feed. And so um, I, I think the way I looked, I was able to promote some people sometimes because I have a lot of followers on Twitter. And so I was uh, helping them out because I, you know, I, I believed in their cause. What they're trying to do is, um, uh, they want a system where you have on your app, you can save money, you know, buying pizza, coffee, things like that. But the other thing that they have is they have collected experts in business, finance, and medical. And every month you will get, you can network with people who are pretty high profile in the metropolitan Detroit area. They'll, they'll explain to you about business, finance, health uh, issues. And some of these people, from my understanding, need help they want to hire people so there's an opportunity for you to be hired at one of these companies that these people are running now speaking of your twitter profile and and you doing videos i know you've done some videos recently you did one about district detroit so i've got to ask you about that and what you think truly about district detroit and what the illich family has done with that up to this point i'm very disappointed in district detroit because um you know when you look at it did detroit really need another arena you had the Palace. You had Joe Louis Arena. There's two two buildings right there. And uh, what excited me and why I supported Little Caesars Arena is not so much the arena, even though I thought it would be nice, but it was what was going to surround it. It was going to connect downtown with Midtown, with Wayne State. It was supposed to be 50 blocks of greatness. Shops, bars, restaurants, condos, apartments, housing, you know, all kinds of stuff. That arena's been open for almost two years now. I don't see anything else. So that makes me mad. And that's why I did the video on what's going on in District Detroit. Now, I've gone on District Detroit's website, and they make it sound like everything is happening. Oh, it's a destination. Everybody's coming down. They're having a good time. I don't see anything there but an arena. And some of the things that are in, quote, unquote, District Detroit were already there. I mean, like the condos across the street were already there. Uh, Founders, which is a place I really like, they're mm-hmm. going to open up anyway. But I don't see this walking destination. If you go to District Detroit, the only thing you do is you go to the arena and then you leave. Or you pay an arm and a leg for parking. 
as well, which is ridiculous. On top of how much you spend on a ticket, right. and if you have a family, a family of four, let's say, right? How much is that? It's a lot of money yes, for four tickets. And then the product isn't the best, which doesn't help out the case, you know, for either team when they're trying to get people to show up and go to the games on a consistent game-to-game basis. Right. The first time I went to uh, the arena, I ran. I was in there for like three minutes, and this guy was walking down the corridor. I said, I just spent $11 for this beer. I said, you can't spend $11 for a beer. He said, I swear to God, it was 11 I didn't know it was that expensive. I thought it was more in the six or seven range. But I took my son there because he's a Spartan fan. We went to, the first time we went was Michigan State, lost to Syracuse in the uh, NCAA tournament. And uh, the thing that was amazing to me was the cost in the um, the gift shops. I mean, there's this t-shirt I kind of liked. It was 35 bucks. I'm like, I'm out of principle. I'm not sp- spending $35 for this t-shirt. So I happened to go, it was a Red, Red Wing shirt. So I went to NHL.com, saw the same shirt. It's $15. Look at that. So where's this $20 going? Yeah, and to help out what? Right. Towards what? I mean, they used all that taxpayer money, right, to build the arena. Mm-hmm. And they're charging you an arm and a leg with the beer, the concessions, right. uh, the vendors that sell the gear, right, well, the shirts and jerseys. blocks. Yeah, do right. what they said they were going to do. Right. Right? Absolutely. So hopefully it does happen at some point, at some point soon here, Terry. Now, how about the product on the floor, uh, specifically with the Pistons? What do you think of them? They're kind of a middling team, a middle-of-the-pack team in the Eastern Conference. They look decent, and they won some nice games, but they're not great. And there's been this concept of tanking brought up with them, too, in recent memory. Well, what are your middle, thoughts? They're a middle-of-the-pack team for now. Uh, I think eventually they'll be a team that won't make the playoffs. Uh, they're a mediocre team. Uh, they have Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond, and I know people are trying to run Reggie Jackson out of uh, Detroit already. So it's just, you know, it's a team that I always look at. If I lived in another city, would I go out of my way? If I saw the Pistons were coming in town, would I go to see them play my local team? No, I wouldn't. So, um, I mean, they're like, all right. Yeah, that's what they are. Yeah. Nothing great. They're kind of stuck in a rut. They're stuck in the middle of the road. And, and what to do next? What should, you know, what direction should they go in next, Terry? And do they deal Reggie Jackson? Do they deal Andre Drummond? What do the Pistons do next? Some way, somehow, they've got to get another borderline superstar to be competitive in that division. Um, I think they have two people in Drummond and obviously Blake Griffin. I would like to see a high-scoring small forward. And I know a lot of people want to see an upgrade at the point guard position. I think he's good enough if you get the small forward that can put the ball in the, in the hole. Yeah, you could upgrade at point guard, but I think, like I said, I think he's good enough for that. But you need that third piece. I always like a guy at the three who can score. Uh-huh. Like, uh, you know, Scottie Pippen back in the day, Carmelo Anthony before his game fell off. Um, somebody who can put the ball in the hole. Yeah, now they could get Carmelo, but he's good, washed but up. The Lakers might, but now nobody even wants him. The Lakers with LeBron, LeBron's here, maybe wants him. They're not even going after him hard, but the Pistons definitely need a wing player. And I like Luke Kennard. Can shoot, and I wasn't worth where they picked him. He's not that great of a player. He's really one-dimensional in shooting the three ball, but he does that effectively. You need that in today's game, as we were talking about before, and the Pistons kind of lack that, too, that three-point shooting ability. Yeah, Stan Van Gundy, who put this team together, was uh, the guy that wanted shooters. He likes to play that inside-out game. He likes a lot of three-pointers. And, you know, it makes sense. I'm not certain he picked the right guys to do it when he had other people. Uh, Like he had uh, Devin Booker from Phoenix he could have had. Could have had the kid from uh, Utah. Yeah, Donovan Mitchell could have, but you're right. What do you think of Dwayne Casey, by the way? Do you think he's a coach that if they had the right roster and right talent that could get the Pistons over the hump? I've always thought Dwayne Casey was a good coach. The thing that he's, he's strongest at is defense. And obviously he hasn't been able to teach his system well enough to this team. He probably needs another year. But um, Toronto Raptors, we always remember the scoring a lot and, and choking in the playoffs. But they also play pretty good defense. He's got... Uh, defensive systems that other people use, and I, I would love to see that implemented here further. And like I said, it probably takes a couple years to really let that sink in. Let's look at the Lions now really quick, and Matthew Stafford specifically. Are you Team Stafford or against Stafford and building around him for the future? Now I am not Team Staff, Stafford. Stafford. But here's what I will say about Matthew Stafford. Uh, is he good enough? to take a team to the Super Bowl? Yes. Is he good enough to take the Lions to the Super Bowl? No, he can't in this and not in this city and not in this environment. I am um, I think people are are on Matthew Stafford more this year 
because they don't want to admit that Matt Patricia is probably in over his head as a head coach right now. He probably wasn't prepared for this job. Uh, he's trying to be Bill Belichick, and that only works with one team in one city with one man, and uh, I don't see that uh, working out here. I'll leave you with this. What's one unique thing about you, Terry, that many people do not know? And you can think about this for a second. I know people know a lot about you now because you were a public figure in the media for so many years. It can really be about anything, but I know it's yeah, a tough one. To, it's, I know you're on the hot seat here. It's a tough one to think about and process and get an answer out. But hot. I'm just trying to think. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of a weird guy, but I like to shop. Okay, and shop yeah. for what then, specifically? Clothes. Okay, Shop for clothes. I'm one of those rare guys that likes to go and shop. I like to... Um, hang out sometimes maybe at a restaurant or a sports bar and meet people. You meet some strangers and it's like you meet someone who's in a different stage in their life or um, gives you, allows you to look peek into what the world is really about. Because if you just hang around your friends, you already know what they're going to say. You already know what their bitches are. You already know, you know, everything like that. But if you meet someone new, it lets you into a new part of the world. And I like, I like that. Where do you shop at, by the way? Because you brought up shopping. You like to do that. Let's see. I like to go to Nordstrom. I like to go to DSW for shoes. Uh, I like to go in there like every three weeks to see if they have something new. And uh, I like to go to Dick's Sporting Goods, you know, get something cool to work out in and stuff like that. So now it sounds like you like going to bars, right? You like checking them out, like a new one here and there, like Founders, you said, right? You like Founders a right. lot, you said. So you like IPA beer. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's your favorite kind of beer, your go-to beer? My go-to beer is Blue Moon. Okay, now why is it? I like I, that, by the way, too. I, I just like the taste. I like, you know, it's kind of full-bodied. It tastes great. It's not, I don't like those beers that are going to knock you on your ass. Uh-huh. But I like something that's a little bit hearty, and I don't, I don't like the real thin beers. Like, the light beers are real thin, and, and they all taste like you put pennies in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and the Blue Moon, it, I think, hits the spot during the summer. Like on a hot summer day, it's like a nice summer beer, in my opinion. I do that year-round. In the summer, I still do Blue Moon, okay. but I also do the uh, Lining Kugel Summer Shanty. I was going to ask you about that. Then yeah. you know what? We're about the same with that when yeah. it comes to beer. Kind of yeah. like my Summer Shanty, summer too. Summer Shanty has another beer, too, that's real good. It's not a pumpkin. It's... Something. Because the one's grapefruit, I know that they have. That's the one, the grapefruit. It's really good, really mm -hmm. refreshing, too, and hits the spot all the time. Once again, for me, more during the summer, but I can drink it year-round, too. So with that, Terry, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for this opportunity, for sitting down with me here on this episode of Vito Sit Down, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. Merry Christmas, and have a happy new year.